0: And so I had put a message out this week and I said, please be in faith, please be in prayer, come with faith, come this morning, I just feel like God is going to do something significant within us. And so I just want to begin by saying, as I start here, let's continue in that place of faith today. And let's be open and hear what God has to say. So I want to begin with, um, well, first off, uh, we're going to finish this morning in our series of Sheer Christianity. Uh, This will be the last week, and um, I want to begin with a couple of uh, reminders and an acknowledgement as I start off, and I try not to often, although I do think I find myself from time to time referring to the previous week, because apparently when you're speaking, it isolates people who weren't there the previous week, but nonetheless, I will say, just as a reminder of some things that I said last week. Um, I want to start actually begin just by acknowledging and saying that what I'm going to share with you this morning, I have been deeply influenced by a writer by the name of John Jefferson Davies, and I spoke about him last week. And he's he wrote a book called Worship in the Reality of God, and I've actually read the book before, and it's been it's a couple of years old, or sorry, it's been a couple of years since I read it, but I picked it up again, and I just I started reading it, and I tell you, it has like just stoked a fire within me. So. I'm not just repeating his words. When I quote him, I'll let you know. But it is also important for you to know that, that, that I've been very influenced this morning in what I'm going to say by what he's written. And secondly, as a reminder, I want to just remind you of two verses. I shared last week um, two verses with you. The first was out of First, first Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. And it says this, that the power of the Lord Jesus is present, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 5.4, that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is present, is present when we, the church, are assembled in the name of the Lord. And the second was out of Hebrews, which was slightly different, but similar in which the writer of Hebrews says that we, the gathered church, are those who have tasted. And there is a, a sense of, of present tasting in that use as well. So it's both the past, but also the present tense, that we are those who have tasted, and he says, of the powers of the age to come. And so I want to begin by reminding us of those two. And there's other texts that speak of the similar, of the power of the present, power of Jesus Christ when the church gathers. But those two were enough to make the point again as a reminder just to set the way this morning as I begin to say what I want to say. And so what I'd like to do is I want to speak on four elements of the Sunday gathering, of the church's gathering that are facilitators of God's transcendent dunamis. And that was really the message that I spoke last week. I talked about the transcendency that culture pursues, and it's pursued in many, many different areas, in leisure, in travel, in science, in vocation, in medicine, in entertainment. There is this pursuit of transcendency in the heart of mankind. And why is that? It's because we are inherently transcendent beings. We were created to worship a God who is otherly, to be enamored with, to be consumed by, to pursue, and to desire deeply to know one that is greater than us. And obviously we know that the fallen hearts of mankind, that that desire and that worship, it's skewed, and and, and it's diluted, if you will, and it's turned and projected to the wrong places. But it's just to say that we see it within culture because it's inherently within God's creation. And so the church now is poised to be, is in a ripe and perfect place to to be an embodiment of, of the transcendency of Jesus Christ as it gathers. Because why? Because God's design, and again, this is what I spoke last week, is just I was sharing from my heart, God's design is that the church would be a place of which, as we sung this morning, that it would be a place not just of worship, but of presence, of real, tangible presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. So, when the church gathers, it actually is presenting itself as the answer to the heart cry of the world the real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I want to talk about four elements of the gathered church that are facilitators for this transcendent dunamis. And dunamis is the word that is used in the Greek. When you see the word power written in the Bible, often the word that we find in the Greek is dunamis. And we, of course, can understand the significance behind it because the etymology would then tell us that it's where we get the word dynamite. So it's not just this kind <laughs> of like, no, eh, no, no, it's, I mean, it's radical, right? It's earth-shaking, it's earth-shaking, it's it's matter-transforming, it's obliterating, if you will, the power of God that's present when the church gathers. And I believe that through a series of things, which we don't have the time to get into the historicity of the church, but through a series of events, I think we find ourselves today in a place of diminished experience when the church gathers, by and large. We've lost a vision for the significance of the church being gathered. And I want to present this morning what I believe is a more vibrant, vibrant, more meaningful, more extraordinary, to use some language I used last week, more powerful example of the church when it comes together or definition of the church that is gathered. And all of this is with the goal this morning, church, I want us together. Listen to me, please. This is my aim in this. And this is what I believe God wants to change in our hearts, that when we come into this place, that as we sung, we are reminded that we're a people of presence. Think about that for a minute. Please don't just hear me rattling off a bunch of theological vernacular, perhaps. We are a people of presence. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit, who indwells you, indwells this place when we gather together. And I'm going to show you this morning how it's God's pattern. It is God's pattern from past both to future that he would come and descend upon his people, that he speaks to his people, that he calls his people to assemble and to gather and the people in turn respond. That is the pattern of the church. So to elevate our faith, brothers and sisters, to a place that when we walk in, not that this building is sacred per se, but what we are about to engage in is otherly. It's not of this world. And therefore it has such greater significant meaning than just being where we come because, man, we had a really crappy week, and I need to be encouraged this morning. Yeah. Or we come because we want to be instructed in our, in our bit of kind of ritual of morality, if you will, yeah, that's right. of having our behavior modified. Wow. No, guys, we come here because of the living and powerful God desires to meet with his people. And it's time for us to recapture the beauty of that design. It's time for us to be the embodiment of that presence because that is what the world needs. And I shared with you last week too, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'll refer to this here a little bit later again, but just as a reminder, when Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts, Paul uses in his in his, in his teaching and in his correction of the church or, or teaching of the church, he says that when prophecy is used, but we can expand that to the greater gifts, to the presence, if you will, of God being with his church, that it would cause the unbelieving heart to be laid bare, he says. So as an unbeliever were to come into the gathering of the saints, his heart is open and all of it is laid bare and God convicts the hearts and it says, Paul says, that he would fall upon his face and declare that God is among you. Who wants that in this place? Do you not want that? What greater testimony that God is alive than his presence being so manifest that someone who comes in says, I am undone. I am a sinful individual. And God must be among these people. So we need to elevate our thinking, we need to elevate our understanding, church, we need to elevate our faith to be commensurate with our understanding, not that it would just be the cerebral ascent, but that we so too would then pursue together. So that means you have to be ready when you walk in through this door. That means you might need to get up a couple hours earlier on a Sunday and just immerse yourself and who God is, and let yourself begin to worship before you walk into worship, right? That means we all have an obligation when we come together to minister unto one another as we minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about something different, and when we start to think about the church, this isn't always that common, and I'm not saying it isn't happening. I'm just saying I don't see it by and large when I look at the Western church on a broad level. Church is not somewhere that we go, it's who we are. And I said that last week. The church is who we are. The church is who Jesus Christ is returning for. He isn't returning for 2951 Sunrise Boulevard. This place is going to be obliterated. He's returning for you. Why? Because you are the church. And in so being the church, that means that the church is a living, breathing organism that is in, in relationship with its creator, that is, that is in this kind of, uh, I'm, I'm missing the word that I'm looking for, but essentially this kind of reciprocal that we worship and he responds. And as he responds, we respond, and, and it's some form of worship. That's what it means to be the church. And so to begin, to begin, because I've spoken for 20 minutes, I want to present the biblical pattern of worship that we see within Scripture, and I'll try to do it quickly because I want to speak, as I said, on four essential elements that I believe capture the transcendency of God within the church when we gather, that that God wants us to find a more robust and vibrant experience within. And so turn, if you will, into Exodus and shoot. Oh, man, I had so much I wanted to read it's all right. I'm going to read it. Liza's always telling me, Lisa, sorry, Lisa's always telling me, stop apologizing for going long. Just go long. So, <laughs> Becky, I have permission to go as long as I want. <laughs> Exodus chapter... <laughs> Exodus. Listen, I want to present a pattern. This is important. It's, this is important. So I want to present a pattern. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19. You know what, I don't have it on the keynote. So whoever's running the keynote, just so you know, that's not right. Don't put it up, whatever you do. Exodus 19, just listen to this, please. And I want you, as I read, I want you to listen, or you can read with me. I'm gonna read from the ESV, but I want you to listen to some key elements, if you will, that, that are relational to the gathering of the church today. On the third New moon after the people of Israel had gone out. That's not one of them. Not the third new moon. In the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse five. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Listen to the words that the Lord is speaking to Moses to give to his people. If you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, underline that, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set down before them all these words that the Lord had commanded to him. All the people answered together, you should underline that as well. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Hear the response of the people to the command of the Lord. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, and underline this, I am coming to you. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever forever. And then skip down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And I just must say, because I skipped it, in verse 13, the Lord says, when the trumpet sounds, they shall come to the mountain. So there's the call of the Lord for the people to assemble at the foot of the presence of God. And so again, back to verse 17, so Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And what does the mountain represent, church? The presence of God, the power of God. It is where the law of God was given to Moses. And now Mount Sinai, it says, was wrapped in smoke because what? The Lord had descended upon it. In fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now turn with me to chapter 24. And now... This, is, this portion is where the Lord Jesus confirms his covenant with his people. And just starting in verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people now, having been and received from the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, he came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice. And what did they say? All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. What a beautiful response, church. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who had burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. And without getting grossed out and going, like, what the heck is he doing? Just look at what he's doing. He's, he, it's the sacrifice, it's the picture of the blood sacrifices necessary for the sins of the people, right? Verse seven, and he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And then later it talks and we won't read any further, but essentially the Lord calls Moses and the representatives of the people to come up onto the mountain. And it says that they ate a meal together in the presence of the Lord. Whoa! So here in these two chapters in 19 and 24, we've got this account of Israel. The law of God is given by Moses, the response of the people affirming their obedience, and the Lord confirming him as their God and them as his people. And we see the blood of the sacrifice represented, and we see this meal that is eaten, and what an absolutely mind-boggling thing that would have been to sit in the presence of God and to eat a meal. And how interesting is that? Have you ever thought like, what's the significance of the meal being eaten in the presence of God? Well, may I just plant something into your minds and hearts this morning that perhaps was foreshadowed in it. So the pattern that emerges is this. In 19, we see that God calls his people. That's the first thing that we see. Mm, It's right here. There it is. God calls his people to assemble. You want to take it from here? Okay. Okay. The second is that God descends in power, he speaks to his people, and what? The people respond. God calls his people to assembly, he descends in power, he speaks to them, and the people respond. Thirdly, we see that the covenant that God has made with his people is confirmed by blood. And then fourth, we see that Moses and the people's representatives eat a meal together in the presence of God. So the pattern that we see is this. We see assembly, descended power, God speaking, the people responding, and a covenant meal shared. Think about that for a moment when the church gathers. God calls to assembly. Assembly, God descends, he speaks, we respond, and the covenant is confirmed through a meal that is shared. And not only do we look at the origin of something when we want to understand God's pattern, but amazingly, as being New Testament believers in this day and age, we also have the double benefit of being able to look forward because God has told us what will be. And we hold these two in tension. We look at what he, in a sense, began with in his people, and we look to what he says he will end with with his people. And it creates a plum, if you will, so that we can look and say, or what, what we're doing in line with the pattern that God has set and with the pattern that God is aiming for. Good. And so then we see in Revelation, in the end of all days, at the culmination of all creation and of redemption, we see the pattern once again. And I won't read it all, but you can just soak it in as I do, and I'm just like chicken skin like crazy. John's Revelation In chapter 7, verse 9, he says this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, the assembly, the final assembly. And in chapter 21, God descends, but what this time, just as he has desired For all time since the beginning of creation, in chapter 21, verse 2, God descends, but now to dwell eternally among his people. And if that was not what God was instituting at Sinai, it was to show that his power and presence was to be among his people. And of course, we know that then he made accommodations, if you will, or arrangements to enable his presence to be among his people. And he gave orders for his tabernacle, right? And his tabernacle was the place of presence. And I remember one time Rick taught, this was probably years ago, and I think maybe you showed a diagram or maybe I saw it somewhere else. But it was the diagram of how the Lord had instructed the nation of Israel to assemble when they camped. And the tent sat squarely in the middle. Church, what is that a picture of? God in the midst of his people. And then back again in verse, sorry, in in, in chapter seven in Revelation, in verses 10 through 12, the response of his people, the eternal worship of the Lamb who is their God. And it says, in crying out with a loud voice, now speaking of this vast multitude, John is saying, crying out with a loud voice, they say this: salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever, amen. The response of the people in eternal worship of the Lamb of God. And we even have a representation in John's revelation, the covenant meal represented in John's picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride, us, his people, his church, no longer in remembrance, but in eternal union is joined with Christ for eternity. John talks of the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation. And we have this picture of the meal. Again, not just in the the now and, and in the not yet, if you will, in the partial that we live in, but in the final consummation of creation and so then we have to ask ourselves, church, what is the significance of this? What implication does it have? Are you I, I'm assuming you're picking up what I'm laying down this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm so stirred to believe this is something much greater than perhaps we've seen it to be in the past. So what's the implication? How far we can see that the church has wandered from this pattern at times? even just to a large segment of Christendom that doesn't observe the Lord's table from week to week to week. One of the ordinances, if you will, the only that is given to the church to be done when you are gathered together. How far the church has wandered from this pattern. Not to mention the expectation and the faith for the descended real presence of God in his church, dwelling among his people. It's so much more than this church. It goes way beyond this. It's tangible. It's physically present. It can be felt. I know you felt it. We can see why the thin and the diminished expression that often passes as church isn't even remotely close to what God has designed for his people. And this is the key. Central to these two Patterns, one out of Exodus and one out of Revelation. Central to it, church, is this. It's the revelation of God to his people and the manifestation of his power and presence among them. That's the key to it. It wasn't the response of the people, which is what we usually make it about. Because what do they say? Everything that you say will do. And they go on like, we're not doing that. Right? Like literally, And they would do it again, and God renews his covenant. We will do everything you say. No, we won't. So it's definitely not about the response of the people. It's about the power and the presence of God manifest among his people. That's the key to this. That's the key to this. And it doesn't diminish the beauty of the teaching of the word, and as I'll say in a moment, the word of God is within that. The teaching of the word is prominent is a prominent element of this transcendent embodiment. The fundamental reality of these two accounts is the awesome presence of God among his people. He calls his people to gather, he descends among them, he speaks to them, he confirms his covenant with them, and he reminds them that they are his, and the people respond to him in worship. And I am not just suggesting, church, that we should consider this. I am telling you that this is God's pattern for his church. This is what it means. This is Christian. This is what church is. Let's elevate from what we see to what we know. And may we be biblically centered. May we be biblically patterned as God has commanded us to be. So every time we come together, the power and the presence of God is established among His people, and that needs to be defined. What does that mean that the power of God would be present? What does it mean that the presence of God is among His people? And I, that's what we want to delve into, and I'm going to do that now, because starting next week, we're going to start a new series. And I want to dig into that more of what that means. What does it actually look like for the power of God to be manifest? Because there was mountains that were trembling. There were trumpets that were blowing. And I'm not talking about shofars, Jamie Purdy. You leave your shofar at home. Let me share this quote with you. Is it in here? Yes, it is. This was by the author, John Jefferson Davies. He says this, The real presence of the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit with the assembly is the church's nuclear option. I love that the power of the spirit with the assembly is the church's nuclear option available when every. every sunday but the church has largely forgotten this option and doesn't and generally doesn't invoke it in the name with full understanding when saul of tarsus met the risen christ On the road to Damascus, he experienced a massive reality encounter, an ontological shock. Ontology is a big theological word that's used a lot, but it just speaks of the very essence of someone's being or being, something's being. So basically he's saying that Paul experienced something so, a transformation so radically significant that it changed all of who he was. So this massive reality encounter, an ontological shock that changed his life and understanding of reality forever. I guess I should have let him just explain what ontology was. (laughs) Yeah, he did a pretty good job. But listen to this, please. He finishes by saying, In every true worship assembly... The Damascus Road reality can be available to impact and transform the believing church by faith. And there he is. He he refers to 1 Corinthians 14.25 as well. Because of the New Testament faith, in the New Testament faith, every Sunday is Resurrection Day, right? And we say this often when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But what does that mean? He's saying what that means. Power and the presence of God is the church's nuclear option. Woo, I love that. So what are these four elements? Hang in there, buddy. You're doing great. What are these four elements? Why is this important? What difference does this really make? Just a reminder again, that in light of these, we've been using the word cultural liturgy, right? Patterns, habits, works of culture that form our desires and form our habits to pattern what they're promoting. In light of the cultural liturgies that we've been talking about through this series, the purpose of this, why this is important, is not only for us to develop a more Jesus-centered expression of Sunday worship, while that is important, but it's to break, listen church, this is important to break the hold that culture has on the church, which has thinned the experience and the expectation of the church on a Sunday morning. Has it not? I will say it's affected me at times. What am I really expecting when I come in here on a Sunday? Just to be stirred by the, you know, the great musicianship, which was excellent this morning, and to be inspired by the songs? Or is it to meet God? Is it to be transformed by the presence of God? See, culture has, has thinned this out. It's diminished our experience. And I talked about it last week, of the rise of a man-centric worship, cults of personality, celebrity pastors. What the heck? I mean, if there's something that is... Less biblical than that, I don't know what it would be. A celebrity pastor? It's because we so value good, you know, excellent speaking and and someone that connects and, man, he's just really funny and this and that, you know, and the next thing. It's easy to see how we get there, but really when we stop and think about it, it's like, what are we doing as a church? Let me share this one quote with you, and I promise, here come the four. Same man again. He says, Christian churches need to constitute in their practices, especially in their practices of worship. That's a Sunday. Alternative plausibility structures. What does that mean? Alternative plausibility structures. What's he saying in that? Practices, listen, the church needs to establish in its worship practices that express the probability of God being true, of God being real, of the presence of God not just in sentiment, but in embodiment. That is what a plausible, alternative plausibility structure is. Okay, churches need to constitute in their practices alternative plausibility structures that can embody and experience the presence of the divine in a way that directly challenges the suffocating naturalism of dominant culture. Are you picking this up? Just, I'll go slow. I want you to get this. The church Needs this. It's the presence of God, again, as I've already said a few times, that testifies to the reality of God. And what this man is saying is we need to work these back into our faith and our expectation and the practices when the church gathers. To challenge the suffocating naturalism of the dominant culture, it's important to defend belief in God and the supernatural theologically and apologetically. That's important. It's important for us to talk about those things and to teach them. But this cognitive strategy, in order to have lasting impact, needs to be embodied within a believing community that expects to experience and is actually aware of experiencing the reality and presence of God of the Bible in its worship. So basically what he's saying is yes, this is good. Yes, it's good. The oration is important. The teaching is important. But if you don't actually experience or have or expect the presence of God in your midst, then you are missing something. It's time for the church to put its money where its mouth is and to show this world, not just say this to this world that God is alive, but to embody the living, risen Christ. So, what are these important elements? The first is, and I'm using this language of liturgy, now we're reclaiming liturgy because liturgy is the act of the people. It's what we do when we gather together. So the first is a liturgy of responding in song. One of the key elements that manifests the tangible, transcendent presence of God in the midst of people is worship and song. There was a song that we used to sing years ago written by Matt Redmond. Some of you know who he is, a contemporary um, songwriter for the church. And he wrote this. And one of the, the opening words to his chorus was that he says, worship starts with seeing you. Think about this church. He says, worship starts with seeing you. He says, our hearts respond to your revelation. Worship starts with seeing God, church. Worship doesn't start with how bad you feel about yourself or how terribly we sin throughout the week coming into the Sunday morning, it starts with a revelation of God for you. What has God done for you? Who is he for you? How much bigger than anything out there is he to you? Now respond in worship from that place. Such a pointed observation as to the nature of worshiping the Lord Jesus that worship begins with a revelation of God. Not us, God. Not us, God. Well, that's like, should be a mantra as we start. We gather on Sundays, not us, but you, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name be all glory. And so sadly, we often see that the modern church even fails in this, on the most basic and obvious starting point. Many churches need to recapture this biblical truth that it is God who is the central figure of the church's worship on a Sunday. And so what we sing, then, is greatly affected. And even how we sing it. Is it in a key that's approachable to all? Or have we just marginalized three-quarters of the church because I like to sing really high in the key of B? I'm telling you, these are conversations we have as those who lead you in song on Sunday mornings. Sing it in a key that everybody can sing it in. Otherwise, what happens? You find yourself excluded unintentionally, and I get there's ranges, and I'm not trying to overstate it, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? So we're, we're intentional, not in just what we sing, which we're very intentional with, but in how we sing it. The types of songs that we sing, the lyrics that we sing. The church needs to sing about All of who God is, not just one aspect. And I was thinking about this. There was a a British writer, a songwriter in the mid-90s that just really had an impact on evangelical worship, and his name's Martin Smith. And he wrote a song. You guys remember what it was? I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. You guys remember that? And I was thinking, you know what? He had it right, but he only had it partially right. And I was thinking of this. If I only told my wife how great her cooking was and nothing else, I'm not truly praising who she is and how wonderful she is. And she's a great cook. But if every day it was like, man, you're such a great cook. I could talk of your cooking forever. I could eat of your cooking forever. Right? But it's a little bit of what the church does. The church loves to hyper-focus on the love of Christ, which is important. But we need to sing about all of who God is. Our short signing, Songs of Lament... When, Lord, will you return? Oh, this sinful world. Oh, my sinful soul. How far I was from Christ. How far you rescued me through your salvation. How great you are To to sing of the omnipotence of God and the unchangeable nature of God. These are the things, and there's a dearth of songs, if I'm honest, that we find today that really capture these things, but we're trying hard because we need to sing about all who God is in all that he has done for us, not just one thing. So as we worship, we begin with a response of, by, by acknowledging who God is, not to us, but what you have done. And then as we worship, as while we start at this place of beginning with what we have seen, as we continue, we respond to what we do see. Because I said, as I said, the church is a living organism and God in his, amongst His people, as he descends, he wants to speak to us. So that means that we have to be flexible. That means we have four or five songs that we've planned, but yet God speaks, and so we have to just stop. And then we respond to God. Like this it's not unlike any other relationship that we have. When we pursue to have coffee with somebody, maybe we have an agenda, and so we sit down and we start talking, and the next thing you know, our conversation goes here, and our conversation goes here, and our conversation goes here. Church, we begin, we must begin in our own hearts by worshiping who God is always. But then when we gather at church, let's expect together in faith that God is going to speak to us. And that's important, too. How does God speak? Stay tuned. You have to come to the next 10 weeks of our series. How does God speak to his church? Who's in? Did you say 10 weeks? I heard you say. It's now 12. (laughs) I'm going to talk about something. Right? Uh, You're such a stinker. So we begin with what we've seen, and as we continue in worship, we respond to what we see as God reveals himself to his church by his spirit. A New Testament scholar that I read this week said that the act of worship is God's divine action, God's divine action, I think it's here, God's divine action consisting in the presence of Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of his promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the act of worship. The fulfillment of his promise that I will be with you even to the end of the age. His presence is an event renewed again and again. The risen and exalted Lord comes again and again in fulfillment of his promise to be with his church. That's a Sunday morning. So worship then isn't a mental ascent, as I said, for the cerebr- cerebrally minded. That's not what it is. Yes, he engages our minds but he engages all of who we are. There's exuberance in worship. That's why here we raise our hands. Some of you might feel like dancing at some point. (gasps) How strange that would be. You might laugh, but Shannon laughed a little bit. I watched the whole thing. I watched a, and some of you might know who this is. I grew up with a worship leader named Kevin Prosh. I watched an hour and a half worship service from 1996 in Toronto this last week of Kevin Prosh leading worship. It was pretty weird at times, but you know what I was caught up by? There was probably a thousand people in exuberant worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was awesome. And I watched it and I went, we've become too comfortable because we're uncomfortable with ourselves. Why are we uncomfortable with ourselves? Worship the King and the splendor of his holiness Give all that you are. Get past yourself. Get past your own thinking and your limitations. And let the Lord Jesus Christ be worshipped as he calls you to worship. And so listen, I understand there's personalities and and there's room for all of that. It's not like everybody has to dance and jump and scream. But I'm just saying, let's worship the Lord. Give all of your body. It's not just your mind. So you might raise your hands. You might jump around in worship. You might find yourself knelt before the Lord. You might find yourself at times on your face before the Lord. That's all right, and that's all appropriate. I mean, David danced naked through the streets. We draw the line somewhere. It's right there. There's none of that in this <laughs> we'd, we'd, like A couple of the guys would come along under your arms and just <laughs> take you out like this. You know, pick, pick your feet up off the ground, and we'll take you right up. And throw your clothes. <laughs> oh boy! I know who that would be. No, we're not. So, in this kingdom moment of worshiping and song, where we extol the Lord Jesus Christ for who we know him to be, and as he descends upon his church in power and by his presence, there's an opportunity and an expectation in his people of his spirit who's present in worship. The spirit of God is present when we gather together. So there's an expectation and a desire, church, a desire. And I'm really hoping to strike this through the next 15 weeks, Hannah. (laughs) Maybe 22 for a desire and an expectation to pursue the presence of the Spirit of God. And that needs to be defined, which we will. But just to say this morning that we desire that and we pursue it when we come together because God is alive and his Spirit is present with his church. Prophecy, words of knowledge, faith, tongues, weird, and their interpretation. Right? These are the things that the Bible tells us can be expected when the church gathers and many more. There's a a writer that I read this week as well by the name of Larry Ortado. I don't think there's any relationship to my sister. He says that worship, is this right? Yeah, the worship event is not merely a religious exercise by the participants, an opportunity to reaffirm their beliefs and to engage in ritualized behavior. That's not what worship is, even though we often see that is commonly what it is. He says the worship is an occasion for the manifestation and the experience of the divine powers and might I add of the age to come. The manifestation of divine powers expectations there are then are characteristically high that in worship setting god will be encountered in demonstrative demonstrative fashion. He's the nuclear option, church. If he's the nuclear option, then surely he's going to shake this place in some way or form. And that doesn't mean every week it's, we'll talk about it, don't worry. But it's just to say, what do we expect? What do we desire? What do we pursue? What do we believe? I want to change the way we think and increase our faith. Secondly, liturgy of the ministry of the saints. So the first is liturgy of the worship and song. And can I just say to you, we got to expand the definition of worship We have confined it to this. This is worship. So I'm gonna come up with some better term to describe what this is. For now, I'm just gonna say worship and song. But this is all worship. Even this moment, this is worship. Why? Because we're submitting our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we're desiring that he speaks to us, and we're expecting that, and we're giving back to him even in this moment where we stand in, in our and listening to me of our awe of who he is and what he has designed for us. So the second is the liturgy of the ministry of the saints. And we'll speak more on this in our next series. But just to quickly say this, that God's divine and sovereign interaction doesn't just simply happen when we sing. It's not just when we're stirred in our emotions by how great the musicianship is. Or the thick fog that rolls through our building. That's not what stimulates this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12.7. He says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. Look at me this morning. I can't make eye contact with all of you. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given a measure of the Spirit of God, of the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of this church. So that must just mean Kevin or Annie or Becky. No, that means Josh, it means Lisa, it means you, Jim. it means each and every single one of you, Mr. Purdy, Lisa Block, each one of you have been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of this church. There's a ministry to one another that takes place, church, that when, and again, I won't refer to it, but that text, and that's the context of of 1 Corinthians 14, 25. That's the context, that as the ministry of the saints to the Lord and unto one another take place, by the Spirit of God, he, he descends in power and in presence, and he is made known to the unbelieving heart. And Paul goes on and he talks about Then right after saying that, to speak about the church as one body with many members, each one functioning for the sake of and to the health and wellness of the others. It's vitally important, church. It's vitally important that you are faithful with the measure of grace that God gives you each and every Sunday. We suffer when you don't obey in faith. That's the truth. Or you don't show up on a Sunday the measure of grace that God gives to you for this church is missing that day. It's true. And it isn't to say that that then God can't do what he will do. God will do what he wants to do. But it's to say, if we each came with this expectation, boy, what a different place this would be. And that's what I'm setting out for. That's what we want to aim for, church. Let me move on. Third, liturgy of the word. So liturgy of worship and song, liturgy of the saints in ministry to one another, thirdly, liturgy of the word of God. When when it's held in light of the presence of God among his people and the power of the spirit, this act, if you will, takes on such greater meaning. When we actually expect that through the word of God that he intends to meet with us and speak to us. Stories are great. They're helpful. Illustrations are helpful. Homilies can be funny at times, but I'm telling you, my Bible says that it is the Word of God that is living and active. It is not my great stories that are living and active. They can help to make a point, but they only go so far. Church, it is the Word of God that is living and active, it says. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God must be central in the gathering of the saints. And we saw it in Exodus, did we not? When Moses gathered the people and he wrote to them or spoke to them what was written. We don't simply come to be reminded, we come to be changed, to have our minds and our hearts opened and transformed into the likeness of Christ, which happens by his spirit. The presence of God, the dunamis power, the preaching of the word. And then lastly, and just quickly, liturgy of the Lord's table. Oh, it's so important, church. It's so important. And it's perhaps maybe one of the more misunderstood liturgies of the church in terms of its real significance. And we've been really trying to emphasize this, and I think we've done a good job. But I'm telling you, there is so much more in this Act than just remembrance. It's a life-giving practice for the church. Concerning the Lord's table, one writer would state that this table is not in a funeral parlor. The table isn't positioned in a funeral parlor. It's in a banquet room that experiences joyful fellowship with the living one. That is where we come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went on to give really compelling argument for why the introspective and solemn attitude that the church often takes, which has been affected by centuries of Christendom. And he did a brilliant job of laying the, the history of all of the, through the Reformation and on, of how that has brought us to a place where the communion table is personal and it's, it's inward focused. It's more than just that. In 1 Corinthians 11 When Paul quoting Jesus, Paul says, Do this in remembrance of me, and speaking of the Lord's table, the word that we translate in the English as remembrance is profoundly more significant in its Greek meaning. In the Greek, its meaning is a representing of a thing or an event regarded not as being absent only in the past, but rather being presently operative by its effects. That's what it means when Paul uses the word, or when Jesus used the word, and Paul quotes it again, of do this in remembrance of me. It's not just remember what happened, but it's the effects of what happened are actively present in the now. And this is what we talk about when the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is present in his table. So the Lord's table isn't then simply where the believers go to reflect on a memory of the past event. It's where the Christian goes to participate by the mystery of our union with Christ, In the present day, grace and all of the benefits of the table, which is why how you approach the table is important, and it's why Paul talks about the attitude in which the Corinthian church had was wrong as they came to the table, the motive of their heart. Church, there's so much more, so much more. So, how do we pursue this? How do we pursue these things? How do we pursue? the real presence of God in the midst of the church. It's going to take time, it's going to take teaching, and it's going to take practice. And those are three things that I'm committed to, church. Time is in space. I mean, even still, like I've gone over, and I hate to break it to you, but I'm going to go longer here. It takes space. It, crea- it takes creating room. It takes practice. Some of these things are going to take us practicing together, but I tell you, there's no safer place than in the community of faith where we're all learning and growing and being stretched and finding our way through these things together by the word of God and his teaching. So my hope too is that these midweeks are places also for the presence of God in the midst of their communities. These hub gatherings that we're doing throughout the weeks, that they would just be microcosms of the real presence of God. So as believers gather and as the Spirit of God is present, the unbelieving heart experiences the reality of the living God. I want to come to the Lord's table this morning. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you have it in you to allow me to read something to you? It's going to require you to really continue to stay engaged with me. Can we do that? I want to read to you something that has really been stirring me lately, and it's, out of John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion. And I was reading this recently, and it just stirred my faith for the Lord's table so profoundly. And I want to share it with you all this morning. Um, It's going to take a few minutes, and then we're going to be excused, but it's so important just as to the significance of the Lord's table. He says this, The other sacrament instituted for the Christian church is the bread sanctified in Christ's body and the wine sanctified in his blood. Moreover, we call it either the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist because in it we are both spiritually fed by the Lord's goodness and give thanks to him for his kindness. The promise added thereto very clearly asserts for what purpose it has been instituted and the goal to which it looks, namely to confirm to us that the Lord's body was once for all so handed over to us as now to be ours, and also forever to be so, that, this, that his blood was once for all so poured out for us as always to be ours. For by this, on the other hand, is refuted the error of those who have dared deny that sacraments are exercises of faith given to protect, arouse, and increase it. For his words are, this is the cup. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This is proof and witness of the promise. But wherever there is a promise, faith has the means to support itself, to comfort itself, and to strengthen itself. Great indeed is the fruit of sweetness and comfort our souls can gather from this sacrament. Because we recognize Christ to have been so engrafted in us as we, in turn, have been engrafted into him. So that whenever, whatever is his, so, I'm so sorry. So that whatever is his, we are permitted to call ours. Whatever is ours to reckon as his. As a consequence, we may dare assure ourselves that eternal life is ours, that the kingdom of heaven can no more be cut off from us than from Christ himself. On the contrary, that we cannot be condemned for our sins any more than can he, because they are not now ours, but our sins are his. Not that any guilt is rightly to be imputed to him, but that he has set himself as debtor for them and presents himself as the payer. This is the exchange which out of his measureless goodness he has made with us, that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred us, his wealth to us. Taking our weakness upon himself, he has strengthened us by his power, that having received our mortality, he has given us his immortality, that descending to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God. With him, All these things are so perfectly promised at this sacrament that we must certainly consider him truly shown to us, just as if Christ himself present were set before our gaze and touched by our hands. For this word cannot fool us or lie to us when he says, Take, eat, drink. This is my body which is given for you. This is blood which is shed for forgiveness of sins. By bidding us to take, he points out that it is ours. By bidding us eat, he points out that it becomes one substance with us. When he says, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you, he teaches that these are not so much his as ours, church. Which he took up and he laid down, not for his own advantage, but for our sake and our benefit. It is not, therefore, the chief function of the sacrament simply to exhibit to us the body of Christ. Rather, it is, I say, to seal and confirm that promise by which he testifies that his flesh is food indeed and his blood is drink, feeding us unto eternal life by which he declares himself to be the bread of life, whereof he who eats will live forever. And to do this, the sacrament sends us to the cross of Christ, where that promise was indeed performed and in all respects fulfilled. In calling himself the bread of life, he did not borrow that name from the sacrament as some wrongfully interpret. Rather, he is given as such to us by the Father and showed himself as such when being made a sharer in our human mortality. He made us partakers in his divine immortality. When offering himself as a sacrifice, he bore our curse in himself to imbue us with his blessing. When by his death, he swallowed up and annihilated. And when in his resurrection, he raised up this corruptible flesh of ours. Just hang with me and I'll finish with this statement. He says this. He raised up this corruptible flesh, which he had put on, to glory and incorruption. Therefore, the sacrament does not make Christ to be the bread of life, but since it reminds us that he was made bread, which we continually eat, it gives us a relish and savor of that bread. In short, it assures us that all things that Christ did or suffered were done and suffered to quicken us. And again, that this quickening is eternal. We being ceaselessly nourished, sustained and preserved throughout life by it. I get that was a lot. But I'm telling you, church, it was so beautiful. The way that he described the depth and and, and how profound the Lord's table really is to us. That all of those things that were Christ's are now ours and not just the death. And this is why we look beyond just a past event, but to the future, his resurrection and his ascension Church is a promise to us that we too will be resurrected and eternally with him in his presence. So there's joy in the Lord's table. There's thankfulness. There's, there's praise in the Lord's table and worship. So may we come up this morning. I want to invite you now to come to the Lord's table. Just maybe you grabbed a couple of things that I said out of that. Hold on to it as you go to the Lord's table. Reflect on it. Worship the Lord in it and we'll come back together and we'll take it together, okay?